James chapter 4. Why don't we turn there? I'm going to read tonight mostly out of the New Living Translation. Some of you have caught on that that's kind of my new favorite go-to plan B. That's my plan B translation. I still love the King James. I love its word-for-word translation. And the New Living Translation is what's called a dynamic equivalence or dynamic equivalence paraphrase. And lots of times the New Living Translation will be a word-for-word, but there are other times it chooses to do a paraphrase and, and capture a modern version of the concept. So it does speak very clear to us. There are a few times I've caught it doing something I don't appreciate it doing, and that was going to be a translator's discretionary decision, and that's why I go back and forth. Anyway, I just want you to know we're going to be looking at the New Living Translation tonight if you want to pull it up on your phone or maybe you have a New Living Translation. But we've been looking at the epistle of James. Last week we had Pastor Ronnie with us and we had a, a unique service with questions and answers with him. Prior to that, my wife and I were out of town, so Mr. Michael Agahemi was ministering. He did a fantastic job teaching us on spiritual uh, behavioral traits, signs of spirituality from the book of James. And really go back and listen to him as an elder in our church. He's a very apt teacher and he has some wonderful insights uh, from the kingdom on what, what looks like spirituality. What are signs that we are spiritually mature? So we're working through the book of James exegetically, trying to do a chapter every night and that we teach it. And one of the things I said, Mr. Michael uh, repeated it, covered it, is that James is written to the Hebrew believers who are scattered abroad. Some believe that's from the persecution that arose in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. James is the apostle. James is also the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. This is the first epistle written in the New Testament. This even predates the Gospels. And so you see a very Jewish-flavored epistle. Though it's written to the church, at this time the saints are still called Jews or Jewish believers, part of the sect. They're, they're about to be called sectarians by the rabbis. They're, they're considered the Jews that follow, quote, the way. And that's a reference to them following this Jesus who was a rabbi. We know him as Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. And he said, I am the way. So early believers who were Jewish, who had become born-again believers, weren't called Christians yet. That first took place in Antioch, according to the book of Acts. And they were called Christians to mock them because they were like little Christ, little Jesus people. He's writing a very Jewish sounding epistle that quotes a lot of the law. And he's also, when he talks about when they assemble together, he uses the word synagogos in the Greek, which is where we get the word synagogue. So we know the early church is still not even really called the church yet by other folks, even themselves. They're, they're meeting as Jews, worshiping Jesus, the Messiah. And the only text they have to study is the Old Testament law, which of course is what the New Testament is built on. You guys know this because I teach you and quote this all the time. Uh, the Old Testament has 613 commandments. The New Testament has 1,050. And most of those commandments, I, I don't have that statistic off the top of my head. A lot of those commandments are copied and repeated from the Old Testament. New Testament commandments include thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not worship any other gods. Those are Old Testament commandments that are also carried over to the New Testament. We don't yet have a distinction between an Old and a New Testament at this time of James' writing because there is no such thing as a New Testament. This is the first work that would be later canonized into what we call the New Testament. In fact, the term old and new wasn't uh, used for several hundred years after Christ's ascension. And I can't remember which one of the early church fathers coined that term. So this is kind of the cultural and the theological setting of this epistle. The other thing we said 
is because he's writing to Jewish believers, there isn't a lot of uh, correction or rebuke instructing them in holiness, as in physical holiness. There's no real uh, dealings with fornication. There's no dealings with lying or cheating. Everything is a matter of the heart. Everything is a matter of faith. Everything's a matter of scripture and calling things back to the law. Chapter one concludes with the perfect law of liberty. There's a lot of callbacks to the law of God. Uh, we're dealing with uh, a lot of references deal with money, which I think is an interesting observation. James chapter one says, uh, let the brother of low degree be rejoicing that he's exalted. And it warns the rich from the very beginning. It warns the rich chapter nine or chapter one, verse nine says, verse 10 says, but the rich, let him rejoice that he's made low. And then chapter two goes on to condemn them for preferring rich people and causing poor folks to sit lower. And then uh, at the end of chapter four that we'll get to, he talks about folks chasing money. Chapter four begins with those who want desperately, who are full of greed and lust, but can't have what they want. And then of course, chapter five goes into you rich, you howl, your gold and silver is cankered. So it's interesting that no discussions on um, what we'd call physical holiness because they have the law. The law makes you physically holy. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a physical holiness. Thou shalt not steal. That's a physical holiness. Um, thou shalt not worship any other gods. There's no idols. That's a physical and a heart condition, but a physical holiness. What we see in James is now this adjustment for the heart. Everything comes back to the heart, the heart, the heart. So chapter four, verse one, I'm gonna start reading in the New Living Translation and I know they'll have it projected on the bottom third of the screen so you can follow along there. Beginning in verse one, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? So James is addressing evidently an issue among the Jewish believers scattered abroad, either by the Holy Ghost or by reports from other saints. He's hearing about a lot of internal struggling. These Jews are scattered throughout the diaspora. They're meeting in synagogues and there's a lot of strife. Strife is also an internal issue. Chapter three concludes with envy and strife. There's a lot of call, second theme of, another theme of James, a lot of call to unity. Don't have rich and poor divided in your church. Don't let there be strife and, and uh, evil uh, work confusion among you. Uh, let there be peace of peaceableness and gentility and be easily to entreat and full of mercy without partiality. You see a lot of these heart conditions being addressed to bring a unity to the Jewish believers and to bring a unity to the Jewish believers. We could still afford that to this day. We don't have Jewish sectarianism in our churches, but we do have personality sectarianism. Uh, we're not Jewish in our mindset. We're not Levant or, or Palestinian or um, Israeli or first century Roman empire minded, but we are American minded. We have ego. We have haves and have nots. We have untouchables and we have folks who are stuck up in their lowliness thinking everybody who's better, bigger than them thinks they're better than them. And there can be just as much an equal pride over the ignorant, unlearned and poor as there can be over with the educated and the wealthy and the well-to-do. So sectarianism, strife, it doesn't have any boundaries. It, it bleeds across everybody because of human condition and the wickedness of the heart. So what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? This is interesting because James reveals that we're usually miserable with people. We're usually hostile towards people. We're usually belligerent towards people because we're warring within ourselves. 
I can, I can speak personally. When something on the inside is agitating me, it burps out and I become agitated or irritable with people around me, mostly my own family. And that may be worth all of us pausing and figuring out, next time you're an irritable jerk towards people in your life, pause and see if it isn't first within your chest, within your bosom, within your heart, cranky, irritable, jealous, hostile, frustrated. It's worth examining because James by the Holy Ghost points out quarrels and fights proceed forth from internal wars first. If you can have peace within you, you can have peace among everybody else. And that's why we like to say we've been teaching it on forgiveness on Sunday mornings. Uh, that person in the church or three people or 10 people in the church that rub you raw, that's God's gift to you <laughs> because they are showing you where things aren't right on the inside of you. So don't get irritated at them that you're irritated. Be irritated at yourself that you're irritated because <clears throat> the person that irritates you brings peace to somebody else, which lets us know that that person is not the problem. It's the internal the internals of the irritated one that is the problem. So we got to stop blaming everybody for our own misery. Peace begins within our own chest and it's, it is improved with a walk with God. So don't blame so-and-so. Say, Lord, why can't you fix them? Say, Lord, hurry up and fix me so I can like being around them. Amen. Good preaching already. Verse two, you want what you don't have. Well, well duh, James. I mean, if I, don't, if I had it, I wouldn't want it. I'd already have it. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Now, does that mean James really was dealing with a bunch of murderers? I don't believe so. But as the New Testament teaches us, he that hates his brother is a murderer. So there's some kind of hatred developing here that, that relates back to verse 1 and the quarreling and the fighting among them. You, ha you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. When you start manipulating people to get what you want, that's a demonstration of hatred. And that does, in some spiritual regard, make you and I a murderer. We're killing people. We're killing our friendship with them. We're killing their joy. We're killing their trust to get what we want. And, and if we're doing these things, it demonstrates that we lack contentment and patience. Ooh, patience, that's a great friend. Just like Dr. Barclay shirt says, peace is a powerful friend. I tell you, patience is a powerful friend. To be able to sit and remain under the hostility and the lack and the want and the dearth and still maintain peace. You're not going to be able to maintain peace without patience. You got to practice patience. And wherever you start squeaking and squawking, wherever your contentment squeaks and squawks and becomes discontentment, that'll show you and I what areas we don't have patience in. Some people have tremendous patience with children. It's a grace. Others can't stand even look at kids for longer than three seconds and they get all irritated. Uh, <laughs> we were flying back from South Africa a couple of, I guess, months ago now, and you wouldn't believe there's this lady sitting about three or four seats behind me and the Murdochs. I was here. The Murdochs were right behind me. Three or four people back. Some lady snored for probably two or three hours. And this was no light snore. 
you could almost hear the lady through the noise canceling headphones. And then when you took them off, you could hear them even louder. It sounded like a 250 cc engine without an exhaust, just ripping it. That woman, she must have had meat hanging down in the back of her sinuses and they were flapping. They had to have been callous. I know she probably woke up with a sore throat and wondered, man, why is my throat sore? And everybody in that class of uh, the cabin could say, we know why, because you snore like a buffalo. I had no patience for her. So I had to put the earplugs back on. Actually, it was a lot of fun to blame Mother Murdoch. I said, Mother Murdoch, is that you snoring? And then watch Pappy just smile at me because, yeah, it probably was her. But this other lady joined in. I had no patience for this lady snoring. I was really, you're going to make the rest of us listen to this? Please, stop. That's just my little irritable thing. Some of you ladies, you know what I'm talking about because you've been married to a professional snorer your whole life. And now it's a kind of, he's become your noise-making machine. You don't need one on your app. You don't need a little noise machine. You don't even need the bathroom fan on to sleep. You just need him to hurry up and go to sleep. So the sound of the bear rumbling can lull you into your sleepy bliss. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Like I said here a few moments ago, you see a lot of heart conditions addressed in this epistle. And this echoes the first warning of James chapter one for the rich. Let the rich, let them be happy that they've been humbled. And we're talking and seeing a lot of greed, internal greed, internal strife. They're persecuted people and yet not persecuted bad enough. When you're persecuted bad enough, you're not worried about getting stuff. You're worried about just having some peace. So they've been scattered abroad because of a persecution in Acts 8.1, but they've settled somewhere, again, in the um, Asia Minor diaspora, and they have enough peace to get back into greed and lust and to begin conniving and working against each other in their own early church fellowship. This is a mess. We're not fornicating. We're not committing adultery. We're not committing idolatry with statues or the pantheon of Roman gods. But we are hating our neighbor in this text because they have something we want. Again, the epistle of James is rapidly and, and regularly dealing with motives of the heart and peace in the heart and division of the heart and strife in the heart. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. King James says you have not because you ask not. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. Again, this is one of the themes of James. What's your heart condition? What's your motive? What's your heart condition? What's your motive? What's your heart condition? What's your motive? The asking is never the problem. The motive will always be the problem. I would also add to that the attitude. To ask, to request is never a problem. But what's the motive? If we ask for something materialistically, because that's the context, if we ask for something materialistically and we're asking so that we might have peace, then we're asking with the wrong motives. Peace doesn't come from materialism. Peace comes from Jesus Christ. Peace doesn't come from having a new car or a bigger house or fancier clothes. Peace doesn't come by having the stuff that the Joneses have and keeping up with the Joneses. Peace comes by walking with Jesus Christ. And I would say, I'm not against name brands. I'm not against nice stuff. Please have all that you want. But if that's your identity, then I would say and judge that your identity is probably not in Christ as it should. Have the nicest stuff you can safely, reasonably afford, especially if it's quality. I'm all for quality. But don't think that that makes you. 
Our relationship with Jesus Christ is what makes you and I. So that has to be first and foremost. And whether I get this name brand or that name brand or I have to settle for a lesser name brand, it doesn't move me because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that kind of discipline, mental discipline, that kind of contentment, that kind of big picture understanding takes practice and it, it takes a discipline of the mind to say, no, we're content. We can keep driving this jalopy. That's an old school word for a piece of junk car. My generation would have said hoopty. Uh, I can keep driving this hoopty, this clunker, a little bit longer till I can safely afford and not have to go into stupid debt to buy something I can't afford. We want to make sure our motives are right. Our motives ought to be, Lord, I'd like to have this. It would be an honor if you would let me have it. I, I would love this kind of thing. But if you don't give it to me, Lord, I'm still going to worship you. I'm still going to praise you. I'm still going to glorify you. If you don't bring it to me today, tomorrow, next year, I got plenty of other things to do, but I sure would like to have it. And your word says that you'll give me the desires of my heart and I'm doing my best to please you, Lord. So I know everything's yours. I would like this though. And I do think it's interesting. James is not saying we're wrong for asking. He says we're wrong for asking with the wrong motives. So that should be encouraging. Just get the motive right and watch your prayers be answered more quickly. And even when you ask, verse 3, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. King James says you, you ask that you may consume it upon your lust. I like this New Living Translation. You want only what will give you pleasure. If I were to be critical of the Word of Faith movement, and I regularly am, that would summarize what we turn most of Brother Hagin's doctrine into. Brother Kenneth E. Hagin was a tremendous man of God. I, I still honor him and the pioneering work he did to bring us doctrine. And the simplicity of the Word of Faith message is this, not this new junk that is all heretical and blasphemous. Brother Hagin simply taught God's Word is true. And if God's Word says you can have it, salvation, peace, joy, fellowship, if God's word says you can have it, then you can have it. And we, he called that the word of faith. And he also taught us that when we pray, in line with what Jesus said, when you pray, don't come out of your prayer closet and shoot yourself in your foot, cursing yourself with your mouth. What we did with that foundational doctrine that took 50 years to, to get into the body of Christ is we turned it into lust. We, we took all those principles of faith and we made it about us. And we made it about what will give us pleasure. We no longer use faith and, and the, the, the revelation that we can speak to mountains and speak to trees. Uh, instead of speaking to the mountains of unforgiveness and to the trees of offense in our lives and, and the mountains of, of spiritual uh, strongholds over our city and speaking to the lost to be born again, we spoke to Rolexes and Lexuses and Jets and we made it all about American consumerism. And this verse was there the whole time saying, stop doing this. Stop doing this. You want only what will give you pleasure. Verse four, you adulterers. Again, I, it's kind of a hard transition. He just said, <laughs> here's the encouraging word. Peter's writing to those scattered abroad, those persecuted, and all he does is chew them out. The whole epistle says you're full of strife. You're greedy. You want stuff. You fight amongst each other to manipulate it out of each other's hands. You have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you don't get it because you just want pleasurable things. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not done yet, Peter says. You're adulterers. So he goes from calling them greedy to calling them unfaithful. When I first repented and got right with God in um, 1995, James, the epistle of James was the first 
book of the Bible I read start to finish in one sitting. I was at Window Cliffs with a bunch of friends from FCA. Uh, actually, we were, we were camping up there. I don't know if you can still do that. Back in those days, nobody cared. We camped up on Window Cliffs. Anyway, I read all of James in one sitting, and I felt pretty powerful because I, I was walking with God, and I read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting in my little pocket New Testament. And I don't remember it kicking this hard, maybe because it was King James and I was just getting back in from the cold of being backslidden. But this is a harsh statement. He calls them greedy, calls them selfish, calls them manipulative, calls them hedonists. And these are persecuted believers. Then he says, and by the way, you're unfaithful to our God. There is a movement right now where people are trying to make Jesus a lot more friendly than Jesus actually is. <laughs> and we're seeing some of that leak out here, or excuse me, the antithesis of that leak out here. When the Lord looks at his people and say, you're unfaithful to me. In fact, I call you an adulteress. That's a harsh statement. We want to make sure that's not us. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. Apparently they didn't hear it the first time. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now this stands in contrast to Romans epistle, uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans where he says, even when we, we were yet God's enemies, Christ died for us. So isn't that bizarre? We can be God's enemy. Christ dies for us, makes us his friend, his child, his servant, part of his body. And then we could still choose to demote ourselves back to being the enemy of God. And how do we make ourselves the enemy of God? We become friends with the world and the world's way of doing things. We become worldly. We become carnal. Now we're in this world, but we're not of it. We have to operate within the constraints of this world. We have to operate under the confines of currency and economy and capitalism and tax code and jurisdiction and legal code. We have to be in this world because if we're not here, we're dead. But we don't have to be of this world. So don't, don't get under pressure that, well, I shouldn't pay taxes. No, you should. I shouldn't obey the laws. No, you should. Uh, but that doesn't mean we have to be worldly or carnal. Just keep that in mind. I'll say it again, James writes, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Verse five, what do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? King James says, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Our friendship with the world makes the Holy Ghost envious because he wants our attention. He wants our fellowship. He wants us to turn to him. First and foremost, with everything we're dealing with, every new thing we encounter, we ought to be turning to the Holy Spirit, the spirit that God has placed within us. The problem arises when we go to the world first. Now it could be we turn to the Holy Ghost and we say, Holy Spirit, what do I do here? And the Holy Spirit directs us to this banker or this doctor or this professor or this counselor or something the world has. Lord, I need, I need, I need a vehicle and the Lord directs us to a certain make and model that we need to purchase to accomplish his work. There's nothing wrong with that because we tagged up or visited the Holy Spirit first. Then he gave us the instruction. The problem arises is when we assume we know what to do and we go to the world first and we do things with the world's wisdom rather than with God's wisdom. And you see this horrifically played out in the Old Testament with King Asa. King Asa was a good king but he got injured in battle and he got wounded in his feet. And the Bible says he sought the physicians. He did not seek God. Therefore, God let him die of that injury in his feet. 
Now that alone teaches me that if I got any sickness that's, that's significant, not just the sniffles and things I know to do for that, but if I've got any injury, I'm going to seek God on my way to the emergency room. I'm going to lay hands and pray and speak the word and do. If it's a major procedure, if it's a long-term chronic issue, I'm going to be seeking God every step of the way before I turn to the world. I think if you need to have a procedure, you should seek God. Is this the right doctor? Is this who needs to deliver my babies? Do we feel good about this procedure? Should we get a second, uh, second um, opinion? Should we get a third opinion? Can we pray about this? I think we've, we've got to do that if we're going to be friends with God and not friends with the world. The Holy Ghost is lusting, is envious, is jealous because we go to somebody else first. Could be they give the exact same wisdom God would give us. But we honor God by going to him first. Think about it this way. Uh, of course, you guys all know our kids because we're part of the family here. But what if, what if my 12-year-old, what if something happened and she was hurt emotionally? And rather than bringing it to mom and dad first, she brings it to one of the other kids in children's church. Uh, now, we're not going to be that hurt by it. But we're going to say, sweetie, you ought to bring this to us. That's a 12-year-old. They don't really know what to do. Well, but... Daddy, uh, they said that I should forgive. Well, you know, they're right. But well, next time you bring it to me, I know a little bit more than your friend. And I'm glad that your friend gave you good wisdom. It's not the full picture of this. I think we see the point. Let's just make sure with everything we do, if we're obeying 1 Thessalonians 5, we're praying without ceasing anyway. It's not going to be hard to fellowship with the Holy Spirit first, no matter what the emergency or tragedy may be. We talk to God first, and then we go start to scrounge up the world's logic for how to handle this thing. And what I mean by that is every issue we have, any emergency, any opposition, any battle, any assignment, it's going to require worldly things to accomplish. We're going to use worldly tools to accomplish it for God. Whether we're building Nehemiah's wall with a brick, that's of the world, and a sword, that's of the world, and mortar, that's of the world. But if we get with God first, it'll be much more efficient. Or if we have to go to the emergency room, we're praying in tongues and crying out to God on the way there because wisdom says we need medical treatment, but we're going to get God's hand on this too. First, financial situation, starting a business. The Holy Ghost lays it on your heart to start a business. Well, don't just jump onto YouTube. Say, Lord, all right, what does this look like? How does this work? Uh, let me, I'm just thinking about it here with this whole publishing thing with our Petra Press I've never done this before, and I'm constantly seeking God on wisdom for how to do this. So then what I do, this is what I've been doing about the last six months. I'm getting pretty irritated, though. So then I jump out there, and I start researching Christian publishing. How, what does that industry look like? How does that work? What are the inroads into it? And I've even reached out to some Christian publishers. They haven't replied. It's been the holidays, so I cut them some slack. But I pray some more. I come back. I'm not satisfied with what in a sense, the world's wisdom is doing even in the Christian publishing industry. So I come back, pray in tongues and say, Lord, that doesn't seem to be it. So then I go back out there and tag up on some internet searches, make some phone calls, reach out to some people, and it's still not working. So I come back and I spend time in prayer. And yet I can't walk away from this thing. I can tell the, the mainstream Christian industry is not a place God would ever have me to go. I've, I've thrown myself at that a couple times. As soon as I tread in those domains, I feel disgusting on the inside. It frustrates me and I feel gross. So I retreat from Christian publishing, what we would call mainstream Christian publishing. And now I'm somehow drawn to these minor publishers and I'm trying to make connections there. 
I still don't know where this is all going to shake out at. I'm still praying about it. My point is I'm doing both. I'm seeking God. It's building me up. Then I launch out and I start knocking on the world's wisdom. Nothing's at working for me. A few things I've picked up, it's working. I bring that back. I spend time in prayer again. Maybe you do the same thing starting a business, building a house, advancing your career, parenting. You should get God's wisdom in parenting. Then maybe you go read a, a James Dobson book or get some, some wisdom from what maybe the world. But you also have to bring that through the filter of walking with Jesus Christ so you don't poison your household with too much of the world's wisdom. All that aside, hopefully you hear what I'm saying. No matter what the assignment, here's a proverb that sums it up. Uh, the horse and chariot are prepared for the day of battle. That's, that's a natural thing. Even Pharaoh had horses and chariots. David had horses and chariots. The horse and chariot prepared for the day of battle. That's a natural worldly thing. But the next part of the proverb says, victory is of the Lord. So we want to make sure we don't grieve God by completely leaving him out of, out of our decision making. Pray, ask God for wisdom. James 1 starts off by saying that. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father who gives liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. Now, what are those evil desires? The discontentment that creates a greed and a lust for stuff. There is a grace that will come upon us to help us stand against evil desires. Not every desire is evil, but good desires can become evil desires if the motive is corrupt. So there's nothing wrong, let's use an example, there's nothing wrong with wanting a car. There's nothing wrong with that desire. We need it in our culture. In Jesus' day, he needed a donkey. He wanted a donkey. I need a donkey. Nothing wrong with that desire. But when the motive is wrong, it becomes an evil desire. We need to be able to judge all of our desires in line with not only God's word, because there are some evil desires like murder and adultery and theft. There are some desires that will always and only ever be evil. But then there are those good desires, those God-ordained desires, those biblically commanded desires that if you don't keep the motive right, will become evil desires. One of the, I would tell you one of the critical components to keep a desire clean, two components, and I've already said them, patience and contentment. If you can constantly mix patience and contentment with your desire, you'll be able to keep that motive clean and that desire will stay holy. The second you forfeit contentment, patience is gonna go freak show and all of a sudden you're gonna lust to get what God wants to give you, but you're gonna get it wrong and you're gonna ruin it. It's just like, I was talking um, uh, several years ago, I was helping a young lady. She had gotten into a lot of gross sin and it was all because she wanted attention. And I said, sweetie, there's nothing wrong with wanting attention. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be accepted, but you don't get to go to the world to be accepted or to get attention. The desire is holy, but you've compromised standards to get what you wanted and you've ruined everything in the midst. So this verse says, he, it promises that Jesus gives us more grace to stand against such evil desires. There's a grace to be content. There's a grace to be patient. There's a grace to be joyful in the midst of going without. And if you're convinced you're not gonna be happy till you get what you want, then you're going to be a miserable person even once you get it. And you're going to realize that that heart 
is an empty hole that you can keep throwing stuff into, but it doesn't ever satisfy. <laughs> Some people have boyfriends like weird old people hoard junk. Weird old people hoard junk because they think having that on a shelf in a closet, in a box somewhere is going to make them complete. And if I ever get rid of it, I'm going to be incomplete. But honey, if you look at your house, there's already a mess. Some people have boyfriends like that. They just collect them. Some people have girlfriends like that. They just collect them. And nothing can fill our life like a walk with Jesus Christ through the word of God and through the spirit of God. As the scriptures say, verse six, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. I like this translation. King James says he giveth grace unto the humble. He favors. God favors the humble. God does have favorites. And you and I need the favor of God. And this verse is really, really, really clear. He favors humble people. So one of the greatest things we could pray regularly is, Lord, help me walk in humility. Help me walk in meekness. Help me walk in teachability. May I never be untouchable in my heart. May my family never be untouchable in my heart. May my preaching never be untouchable. May my, you name it. We all have something in our life that we have communicated is untouchable. Uh, I like God's creation. I'm sure you do. And there are certain animals that are designed in such a way to just look at them. It says, get back. Like there's, there's moths that they splay their wings out or butterflies. It looks like you're looking in the face of a big animal. So predatorial, predatorial birds won't go after that butterfly because it looks like they're going to dive bomb a, an owl or something. And just by spreading those wings, that moth or butterfly says, get back. I'm untouchable. And there's another insect that secretes this nasty thing. So even when the bird eats it, it spits it right back out before it has a chance to crunch it. You know, certain caterpillars are all spiny and, and just look horrific. So animals don't mess with it. Sometimes that's our attitude. Our attitude is that we're untouchable and that don't you, we, we carry it with a, with a persona that says you can't ever question me and don't you ever, ever tell me I'm wrong or there'll be hell to pay for you. There's people in this church with that attitude. Don't ever cross me because there'll be hell to pay for you. And I feel sorry for that person. And everybody in here, as soon as I say that, you're thinking of two or three people like, yeah. I, here's how we help those kind of people, church. We feel sorry for them because that means they're insecure. If they can't ever be questioned, if they can't ever be confronted, if there can't ever be some kind of, hey, have you considered this without there being hell to pay, where's that hell coming from? Coming from the inside of them. Insecurity, instability, timidity, fearfulness. And so they have to kind of push big because it's a self-defense mechanism. But when you walk with God, you don't really need any self-defense. You got God's defense. I'd much rather learn God's defense techniques than self-defense techniques. So God humbles, excuse me, God favors the humble. Verse seven, so humble yourself therefore before God. Humble yourselves before God. Why? So he can favor you. God doesn't favor all of us in this church the same because we have different levels of humility. And even in our lives, we have different areas that we're more humble in than others. Brother Hagin used to say all the time, and listen to me, church, Brother Hagin used to say all the time, three quick ways to offend God's people. Number one, talk about their money. Well, that just means people are in pride over it. Number two, talk about their weight. That just means they're insecure about it. Number three, talk about their children. That just means they're blind to how bad their kids are. Somebody who's insecure about their weight may not care if you deal with their kids 
like their kids need to be dealt with. Someone who doesn't mind if you talk about money may be horrible with their kids. But if we can walk in humility, God can favor all the areas of our life. And I remind you, Dr. Barclay says regularly that offense is nothing but a violation of personal pride. So anywhere we get offended and we got to repeat a matter and talk about it over and over and over again, it's really revealing where we have pride that still needs to be dealt with. Amen. Humble yourselves, therefore, before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We can't resist the devil without humbling ourselves before God. We can't submit, uh, resist the devil until we submit to God. We cannot resist the devil until we submit to God. And that's as simple as taking a knee in your heart, even a knee in the actual if you want to, and say, Lord, deal with me about me. Deal with me about me. Help me. Humility is a simple saying, Lord, help me. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Now, I want to back up and say this. Beginning in verse 7, you have a tremendous list of commands. In fact, I'm going to look through it, King James, real quick. I'm going to count them out loud, right? And I've got them all underlined under my Bible because this chapter concludes with nothing but a massive list of commands. So verse 7 says, submit, resist. 8 says, draw nigh, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be afflicted and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Verse 10, humble yourselves. Verse 11, speak not evil. Uh, verse 13 says, come on now or go to you that say. I would probably count that as, as eight or nine. Um, and then that's where it stops. So we have nine commandments in the remaining part of the chapter. Chapter five goes on to give us a bunch more commands. And that'll play into it when we cover chapter five. Because it says, above all this middle part of chapter five, above all, above all, well, above the 15 or 16 commands you just gave us, he goes on in chapter five to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The most important thing above all this is being a person of your word. But I want you to see what we're looking at now in verses seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, are several commands that we have to obey regularly. And they're all about the internal workings of our heart. So verse seven, humble yourselves, resist the devil. Verse eight, come close to God. He will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Obviously, we're not just talking about for germs and dirty, grimy hands, but when you're sinful, repent. When you're sinful, wash your hands, purify your hands uh, and be clean before God. Purify your hearts. When you wash your hands, that's symbolic of what you've done sinfully. And then to purify your hearts, that's where the sinfulness was rooted and, it, and, and proceeded forth from, as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, from the heart proceeded forth envies and murders and fornications and all manner of wickedness from the heart. We wash our hands, we purify our hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. King James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So I like this dynamic equivalence. It kind of gives us the paraphrase interpretation. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. I'm still waiting for the huggy message that probably a Christian television minister or artist, because, you know, they get the best performance award, that they would deliver to a, a young Jewish believer being scattered abroad, having been run out of Israel and being under persecution. Where's the huggy encouragement that today's minister would afford? God loves you and he knows it's hard. And, you know, as long as you give him your best, He's going to make all your dreams come through. James says you're adulterous and your loyalty between your God and the world is divided. So get it fixed. Draw close to God. 
I don't see the encouragement that our culture has come to accept because of 40 years of Oprah's nannying. We have to look for the word of the Lord to strengthen us. If God says grow up, bless God, I can grow up. If God's word says stop mourning, bless God, I can, I can mourn. If God's word says begin to cry, then bless God, I can begin to cry. I don't really, the church culture is in the condition that it's in because God's word has not been propagated or taught true to scripture. It just isn't taught anymore. We're, we're mining God's word for feel-good messages to tickle our ears and pet our flesh. Let's keep reading. Let your tears, uh, let there be tears for what you have done. So here's an example where it says you need to start crying. And if God's word says start crying, then we can find the sorrow and the penitence necessary to make the tears come. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Oh, bless God. No, no, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, here James says, let there be gloom. You don't have time. You don't have permission to be happy over any of this. What is any of this? The sinful stuff. In the context, it's that there's wars and fightings among these people of James's target. And they're rejoicing over it. And he's commanding repentance. If you're a snob, you should repent. If you can see how ugly your soul is towards your brother and sister in Christ, there should be gloom. And you should weep and howl and be sorrowful till that godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. I came through the word of faith revival like many of you. And we were taught anything that was sad or sorrowful was not God or faith. I watched... I streamed the funeral because I couldn't be there. I wasn't invited. I streamed the funeral of Dr. Hilton Sutton, one of the last great word of faith uh, fathers to pass away. He died probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago, maybe. I streamed the whole service and there was a lot of great word of faith ministers there. And one of them got up and he said, we're not going to mourn for Dr. Hilton Sutton. There's no faith in mourning and we're faith people. I, and honestly, this guy's way older than me. I thought, you're stupid. And you don't know the scriptures like you should because mourning is spoken of very highly. It's praised. Ecclesiastes, if you get out of the New Testament and look at some of the Old Testament stuff, it says there is a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. And then if you come to the New Testament, James commands us to mourn and he commands us to grieve. So I came out of the word of faith and everything was supposed to be hap, 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 happy. And we had this facade because everything had to be hap, 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 happy and joyful, joyful. Got to have all of our junk together because we're faith people. And there's no reality to any of that. It works to say, God, I hurt. God, I'm angry. God, I want to kill something. God, I'm sad. I can't stop crying. Or Lord, I'm, I'm joyful. I'm happy about this. I don't know if I should be happy about this. Uh, any good movement becomes uh, a, a shrubbery that needs to be pruned or it becomes a ditch that needs to be cleaned out, which is why we keep coming back to the word and we keep coming back to the word and we stay established in the present truth that the Holy Ghost is emphasizing to us. We don't worship old movements. If you haven't noticed, Christian television has even moved on from the word of faith movement. Hopefully you have too. Now what Christian television has hopped on isn't anything better. It's actually worse. And if you're still following some of those old word of faith uh, spearheads, uh, there are not many that are current with God. I'm not sure I'd watch anything. <laughs> I'm really not sure I would feed on any prophet on television prophesying. So hear me very clearly. As your pastor, as someone who teaches you four services a week, 
and I've demonstrated the ability to still manifest the power of God and operate in the gifts of the Spirit and see things that need to be seen, I don't think I would encourage you to watch anybody on television prophesying. If they're on TV prophesying, I probably would just, I'd, I'd tell you to go find Calvin and Hobbes and read about a boy and his stuffed tiger sledding down a hill. That would do you better than to follow somebody who still has a telecast and prophesies on it. If you, if you can't perceive that that thing is passe and weird, I don't know if I can help you. And it might be making you weird and it might be robbing you of actual boots on the ground, nitty gritty victory. Because what we've seen prophesied in the last five years has all been a bunch of lies and trash. And nobody who's been inaccurate has repented. Not even the former greats have come back to repent of their lies, hypocrisy, and to admit that's probably a familiar spirit. Sorry, guys, uh, please don't turn off my telecast. I need your money. But I kind of channel familiar spirits more than I channel the Holy Spirit because it brings in the bucks. They're not going to do it. Stick with your Bible, stick with your Bible, stick with your Bible, stick with your Bible, stick with your Bible. Scriptures built civilizations. Prophecy did not so much. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow, deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Humble yourselves. So we see this call to humility so God can favor us. He favors the humble. Humble yourselves. Then it says, humble yourselves therefore before God and he will lift you up in honor. The best way for God to honor us is through humility. If you have to defend yourself, if you have to stop people and you're doing this regularly, putting your hand up, say, let me just stop you right there. You're not going to be honored by God. You're already busy honoring yourself. And Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. Just humble yourself. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to speak. You know what? It's actually a thousand times more efficient to hear. Listen, this is what it looks like to hear. It takes so much more energy to actually speak because you got to move your jaw. You got to think, you got to speak, you got to process and just listening, less calories. It's easier. Try it more. <laughs> Don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters. Yeah, there, there's a good call. You see again, division within these believers from the very beginning, we got rich and poor being spoken of. Then we're talking about uh, uh, strife in chapter two. Uh, that we ought to be honest, uh, actually in chapter three, for where envying and strife is, there's confusion. Verse 14 in chapter three says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, and then uh, chapter two talks about rich and poor again, and then folks wanting to be many masters so they can exercise authority over each other at the beginning of chapter three. And now he's saying, don't talk evil against each other. We see a division. There's, a, there's not a sexual immorality. Uh, there, there's not an idolatrous immorality in these believers. There's a heartfelt immorality. There's an idolatrous uh, immorality of worshiping money and greed and now gossiping against each other. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. Now, this is an interesting concept and worthy of more study than we have time for tonight. But if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. That would undermine a lot of today's theology. James says, your job is to obey the law, the law of Moses. Why is that so important? That's all this church has to study. 
This is the law of Moses. That isn't even the prophets. That's just the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Yes, the sacred writings, which we'd call the history and the poetical books, is included, the Psalms. And then you have the prophets, basically from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. They had that as well. But the law was basically the first five books, the Pentateuch. He says, your job is not to judge each other. Your job is to not judge the law. Your job is just to shut up and obey it. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Again, this comes back to that rich or poor concept, the strife, all these inner wranglings, wars among each other, uh, committing murder to get what you want. You see that the total chaos that's being addressed by this epistle, which may include or explain why it's not so encouraging because the theme that we've been observing tonight is this constant thread of division among these believers. Evidently persecuted, but not persecuted enough because when you're persecuted enough, you have all things in common, which is the persecution. So he's saying, why, why are we, if you'd focus on the law of God, we would say it this way. If you just focus on doing the word, you wouldn't have time to pick on each other. If you would focus on the word of God, you'd realize you're not perfect at it, just like they're not perfect at it. So how about we help each other become perfect or mature at doing the word of God? It's why it's wise to say, you know what? I don't have it all together. God have mercy on me. If you would let me, let me help you. Matthew's gospel, uh, the um, Sermon on the Mount says, before you go to pull the splinter out of your neighbor's eye, brother, actually, your brother's eye, that's different than your neighbor. Before you pull the splinter out of your brother's eye, how about you pull the two by four out of your own eye? Basically, how about you really get good at doing the word of God before you go correct everybody else in doing the word of God? How about that? How about you, you do the word good, really good, and then you can go help everybody else do the word good. It's kind of like the 19-year-old who was born in 2005 wanting to tell folks who've been in the ministry 30 years why they're wrong for how they do ministry. I'm sorry, sweetie, you have half a semester of college under your belt and, and what do you know? If I, want the new, if I want to learn the new TikTok moves, I'll come ask you, sweetie. But other than that, just be quiet and learn something. Preferably a trade skill because what you're majoring in isn't going to help society at all. In fact, you're going to get a degree in that uh, foolish field and then you're going to expect my taxes to repay your debt because that's what Democrats want to do is wipe away all student loan debt because apparently these young kids didn't know what they were doing signing their name to six figures of school debt for a useless degree, but a 10-year-old does know what they're doing when they want to transition. But that's a hypocrisy that the strong delusion that is the judgment of God is bringing upon our nation of intellectuals. And this is why I don't trust our society. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Verse 13, bringing this in for a landing. Look here, you who say, again, another rebuke. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make our, or make a profit. Money, money. This, this whole epistle has three or four major themes and money, money, money is one of them. Is there anything wrong with a business? No. Is there anything wrong with profit? No. Is there anything wrong with going into a city for a year? No. Because the desire is not the problem. The motive is the problem. Here's how James answers this, is, this issue. Verse 14. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, 
we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own plans and all such boasting is evil. Oh, it's a hard statement for an American. You're boasting about your own plans and that kind of boasting is evil. Where's the balance for that, Pastor? I don't really know right now. How about we kind of dial it back as Americans and say, Lord, if you will, I'd like to take a vacation with my family. Lord, you know, I, every year for the last 10 years, we've gone to Barbados. Or every, every year for the last 10 years, we like going to Pigeon Forge. Or we like going to Sandusky and riding the roller coasters. Or we like going down to Texas and seeing Grandma at the homestead. There's nothing wrong with the plans. But the boasting that you're going to do them becomes evil because we have not asked God what he thought. Like I shared with you, we have a sermon we just taught recently called Permission Land. We're still God's kids, and we ought to still live in Permission Land. We ought to still say, Lord, if you will. Every year for the last four or five years, we've gone to Myrtle Beach. We like going there. And every year about this time, we start praying about it. And honest to God, I pray. And I say, Lord, do we have permission to do that? Do we have permission to go to the beach? Uh, Lord, you know, it's an inexpensive vacation for us and somebody blesses us with uh, some, uh, some condo time and really we just pay for food and gas and, and then excursions. Is that okay, Lord? Or do we need to do something else? Or Lord, I'd like to go preach for this person. I don't always get permission from God to go preach and yet I'm called to preach. Somebody once asked, you know, how many, how often do you turn down invitations? And in the States, I have to turn them down, uh, you know, not too regularly because most of them I can take. I don't get a lot of preaching invitations in the States. I could probably be gone once a month uh, to preach somewhere in the States. But overseas is another story altogether. Easily, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could probably be in a different, two different countries a month. I could honestly be in Africa every month if I wanted to. Um, because we have standing invitations. All, all, some of those guys, I just have to say, hey, I, I need to come to your country. And they'd say, when do you want to come? How about next week? We can make it happen. That's how quickly it would work. But I don't have permission to do that. And yet I'm called to do missions. And this church is called to do missions. And yet I don't have a permission. So such boasting is sin. I think the big picture I want us to take away from this chapter, church, is that we ought to be asking God for his help in everything. And maybe, maybe the, the, the issue as I'm considering it in this moment right now, the issue for these young Jewish believers was that they were being persecuted and they were being scattered abroad, abroad about East uh, Asia Minor and they weren't even bothering to ask God for permission for their new lives. They were just picking up where they left off without this new thing called the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And we need to avoid that. For what I believe and most preachers I know believe is coming, the persecution, another scattering abroad, we need to make sure we're really good at being led by the Holy Spirit. We get his permission to make big purchases that might hurt us financially. Certainly we need to get God's permission on whether we go to college or not. We need to get permission on what college we go to. We need to get the plan of God for the major we're to study and not quit if it's a little hard or the professor has a foul mouth or is a little wokery. We need the wisdom of God on everything we do and we need the permission of God on everything we do. Otherwise, we become like these word of faith heretics who basically teach us to dream a dream and then command God to bless it in Jesus' name because I have authority to speak to the mountain. Wow! Yeah, God's not the mountain you speak to. He's the mountain you build on. Let's not confuse the mountains. Last verse. Remember, 
It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And here is one of the issues with going to a church that teaches. When we teach constantly, we become more responsible constantly. When we teach constantly, we become more responsible constantly. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If we know to do right, we ought to do it. If we know to pray and get God's permission and pray and get God's grace, then that's what we do. I, I can't emphasize it enough. We get permission on all the purchases we do here. I seek God for grace on the stuff I do in my home. Uh, more than anything, I probably drag my feet on a lot of stuff. The guys around us would tell you that. Drag our feet on our major purchases. I drag our feet on what we're going to do. Even getting on an airplane here in about 10 days to go to Saudi Arabia, I will have my radar up. I bought insurance this time. I will have my radar up, and if I don't need to get on that airplane, I won't get on that airplane because I'm not going to go to Saudi Arabia without permission, without God's hand upon me. And I don't care what it costs me. I got insurance this time, though, so, but I'm fully expecting get, to get to go. I, I, I can't help church but think the more real God is to us, the more we involve him in everything. The more real God is to us, the more we will involve him in everything, even the jots and tittles of our life. And that's really what he wants. He wants to be involved in the most minute detail of our lives. For what it's worth, last statement, because I could think of these stories all day long. We teach our children when they lose stuff to ask the Holy Spirit to help them find it. We dispatch angels to find stuff. That may sound ludicrous to you. It works. G, uh, Bud loses G.I. Joe stuff and he knows what the answer is. Ask the angels and the Holy Ghost to help you find it and we find stuff. My boy has probably 30 G.I. Joes. Six inches. Six inch G.I. Joes. And they all come with five, six, seven, eight, nine weapons. And knives, little knives that come out of sheaths and holsters. 30 G.I. Joes, let's say, at least no less than 150 little weapons, swords, knives, handguns, silencers, magazines that come in and out of the gun. Out of 30 in two years, he's only lost two weapons. One was a little arrow, an arrow that went into a quiver for the ninja storm shadow. We lost that in the backyard, but we, we prayed and we found the bow and arrow in the backyard among leaves. And the other sword was Snake Eyes' sword. He lost that at his grandmother's house. I'm not sure the angels... I'm not sure the angels can work with my, my mama to help find that. That's a joke, but maybe not. But we at least know where that's at. We use God. I don't want to say use. It sounds bad. We ask God for his hand in all that we do. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. It glorifies him when he can put his hand upon us and watch us be exalted and honored so that the world would say, how is it it goes with you that way? I want it like that. And ultimately, it gives us an opportunity to preach the gospel of our God and Savior to a lost and dying world. Amen.